Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand that had an impact on you? Oh, Benetton. I grew up in New Hampshire, pretty rural, and we didn't have a ton of money. Um, My parents were teachers, and Benetton at the time used to have this huge printed, it was like a newspaper, and it was this iconic, it was black and white. It was showing white people in colorful, beautiful, iconic clothing with black people, with, you know, like the hair, the colors, the fashion. And I would literally, my wall was wallpapered with them. Benetton and Absolute. I had every Absolute (laughs) ad. I had every Benetton ad spread around my room. Early preparation for the role you're in, Erica. Yeah, totally. I loved it. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Erica Nardini. She is the CEO of Barstool Sports, the super popular sports and pop culture blog that has grown into quite a large media company with a $450 million valuation. Barstool shows include Pardon My Take, Chicks in the Office, Lights, Camera, Barstool, KFC Radio, and lots, lots more. I worked most closely with Erica when I was on the board of directors of AOL before it was sold to Verizon. She was the CMO of AOL at the time, and it was a challenging role. Erica has a fascinating career path, taking her from the finance world to ad agencies, to large tech companies, to startups, and now to Barstool. This is my very lively conversation Erica Nardini. Well, hello, Erica. How are you? And welcome to the CMO podcast. Thank you. You are we are we are recording on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. You are wearing green. I have my drink like a champion shirt on. Yep. We're recording. Also, you're at home now, and I am as well. Correct. Yes. Yep. Do you have any Guinness Stout in the refrigerator? (laughs) I do actually. (laughs) I stocked up. Well, listen, um, thank you for doing this. I know this is a crazy week for you. you yeah, absolutely. You, I think you, you, uh, have, you have everyone working from home, and I know mm-hmm. we were supposed to record this yesterday, but it was a chaotic day for you. Yes. I'd like to stay on that thought for a moment as we start the podcast. We, we okay. are in the middle of the coronavirus national emergency. So I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, what you're learning as a CEO in this unprecedented time. There's no playbook. You know, it's it's interesting. So we were to be, this is March Madness season, which is a huge season for sports betting. It's a huge season for sports fans. We were this week to be embarking today on a tour that was going to take us to four stops. We had wrapped an RV. We were sending dozens of people to do live shows and watch parties Uh, And we were really excited about it. Um, And obviously, all of those plans have been put by the wayside. So, you know, what's, I think, been interesting is you you kind of have to abandon every plan that you have in a time like this. uh, And you have to make new plans. And you're making plans in a time where there's a lot of uncertainty. No one knows how long this is going to last for. No one knows how severe it's going to be. There's a lot of personal anxiety because it has to do with people's health. People have different um, levels of tolerance for uncertainty, um, personal safety. So it's been a lot, uh, very honestly. I think there's just the reactions to coronavirus have really run the gamut. What, What I've really felt as a CEO and just with our company is the best thing I can do is to be prepared Uh, to be as nimble as possible. We don't, you know, I'm basically saying, hey, we're taking this day by day. So, 
you know, we, we've kept the office open as long as we could. It became very apparent over the weekend and yesterday that things are certainly escalating. Uh, we want our office to be safe and, and virus-free, to be honest with you. We're a content company. So, you know, the other big drumbeat that I think is important or that, that we think is important is what people are turning to right now is content. And what they've always turned to with Barstool Sports is a brand that provides an escape. So we still want to be that. We feel a very big responsibility to keep making the content and keep being entertaining and keep being funny. Um, but it's hard to be funny in a time that's not very funny. So, you know, we're, we're just, we're kind of feeling our way through it is, is what I would say. What are you, what are you doing? How do you, how do you, you know, I, I agree with this is tough. It's not a time to be funny. All the late night comedy shows are yeah. canceled, et cetera, et cetera. So what's your strategy for content in these times? I mean, you're beyond sports now, right? You're pop mm -hmm. culture as well, but what? How, what, how, how are your creators thinking about that? We're, we're fortunate that we're not just sports. Um, you know, I put out a tweet uh, last week of, you know, Sports Center, ESPN's running Sports Center 24 7. It's hard to run Sports Center when there's no sports. I'm very grateful and really proud that, uh, that our talent and personalities can and do talk about literally anything. Um, the other piece that, you know, we're built on the internet and the internet is virtual. So, you know, we have a top Snapchat show called The Group Chat. Yesterday, our personalities did that from three, three apartments. They did it over FaceTime. They put the show out as planned. They got the ads, ad reads in as planned. So, um, you know, podcasts will do remotely. Snapchat shows we'll do remotely. Stool streams, you know, we have a, or stool scenes, we have a show uh, that's just the kind of the document, documenting of life at Barstool. That will all be virtual. People are sending in their videos of this is what my week is like at home. Um, you know, we have, we have our golf guy has a putting green set up next to his washing machine and his refrigerator, and that's what he's doing. Um, we have, you know, a guy in Florida right now catching Marlin and he's just like, I'm going to stay down there. I don't want to be in New York city. So we're trying to be as flexible as possible, as creative as possible, certainly. And we also want to be consistent. So the podcast will go on. Our radio show will go on. Uh, the Snapchat shows, the TikToks, the video shows will go on. I think that's actually what makes us very different from a traditional media company is that the traditional media companies, when the studio is closed, everything stops. And because we were never built with studios, we don't think that way. So I think it's a big opportunity for us to, to be more prolific. And we also have a culture and a DNA of creation. So you know, I'm excited for this time in some regards of like how creative can we get and how many new shows and ideas can we create? Um, and, and that's really what I think the most optimistic, hopeful side of us is focused on. It sounds fabulous, actually. Yeah, it's unleashing. we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's very human. You're showing what yeah. life is and, you know. It's messy. Yeah, it's messy, but it's also, uh, this is where you tap into your creativity and your talent and get their ideas coming forward, which it sounds like you're exactly doing. Yeah, yep. So we're, you know, we're confident that we will keep going for as long as humanly possible. The worst thing that could happen is we get sick. Um, but, you know, what you'll see from Barstool Sports is if our talent and personalities get sick that we're going to talk about it. And, you know, that's part of what makes this such a neat place is that there's really nothing off limits. And some people can take that as a bad thing. But in a time like this, as everyone in the on the planet literally is muddling their way through to figure it out, we're we're doing that same thing and telling our story why we do it. Yeah. We're all, my little company's all working remote as well. And my yep. marketing director just texted us all a picture before I started this podcast of her one-year-old just creating havoc at home. There's just food <laughs> everywhere. Yep. And she was just like, hey, happy quarantine, guys. How's it yeah, going at your place? <laughs> totally. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny. We created uh, my college friends, co college friends found this app called House Party. And so we've made this thing where every night at eight o'clock, there's a cocktail party. 
and there's 10 people in the chat and there's trivia games and people are just so you know i think the neat thing about humanity is people will still connect and people will make connections with one another and make content from that and uh, you know i love that i love content we just recently recorded a podcast with jenny avalon at uber and she's head of marketing for the u.s and she is doing virtual lunches three times a day three times a week. yeah so everyone Completely. just gets together, have lunch, they chat, they catch up, they do what they would normally would. It's just getting yeah. all sorts of creative ideas to keep our human connection and our creativity going. Yeah, it's great. And it's also neat to see what people do with their time. I'm still in the little bit lost phase of like, oh God, this is, I feel a little lost. I'm a little, I'm not sure what to do with myself. Uh, you know, I looked on Twitter this morning, we have a guy on our team, John Feidelberg, who's learning how to play the ukulele. So it's, you know, people will be weird and funny and unique in what they do with their time and, and in how they find other people. So I I think, you know, I think it will be, it will change us as a, as a nation and as, you know, globally, but some things remain fundamental and true. People will try to connect with one another. People will, endeavor to do things that make them happy and where they create fulfillment. And I think it just remains to be seen how those things play out. Yeah. One thing we're doing is, you know, there's always long-term projects you never get to because of the daily grind and the mm-hmm. things that are coming in and so Absolutely. on. So, so now we're kind of saying, what are those couple long-term things where we can now like really dive into? I'm in the same place, like Q4, you know, like I'm trying to think, you know, we just recently took an investment from Penn National, which is a large uh, casino and sports betting operator. And I I think that something's going to happen in sports whereby sports and sports betting are are not going to be two different things. Betting is sport. And I have in my mind this positioning for it of how I'm, how I want to tell that story and what does that mean and what does that mean for a brand and what does that mean for content? And, you know, I've, I've had that on my to-do list for two months now of like, how do I write that? How do I make that happen? And, you know, now we'll bring that to life because we have time to do so. Well, give your new investors my best. I grew up near Penn National. And when I was younger, I used to go to the racetrack. Absolutely. They're great. Um, we spent last week with them in Las Vegas, which was actually very interesting you know, they were explaining Vegas. Las Vegas is a town of bust and boom and just the way the casino business has been built. And it's really in, it's really interesting, especially for us. We're a digital business. I'm a digital person. Uh, but to see brick and mortar and to have partners who come from that world is, is very cool. This will be fun to watch. Now, listen, uh, you are a digital person, and I want to talk about that for a minute. I want to kind of flash back through your career, and then we're going to come back to Barstool and talk about that. But you and I, for your entire career, we have been in similar circles. Yes. Right? You started at Arnold and Digitas. Those are both agencies that work with Procter & Gamble. Then you went to MSN, Yahoo, Demand Media, AOL, and now you've been four years as CEO, CEO of Barstool. So I want you to reflect a little bit about that rich career path, Erica. Mm-hmm. I, I've been you know, seeing you in, in, in moments of that. Yeah. But I want you to talk about what in that rich career path, what experiences, what lessons, what roles best prepared you for CEO of Barstool, where you've been doing an amazing job, at least from everything I see. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, I've loved my career. I haven't had a very linear career, to be honest with you. Um, I have always wanted to create things. I I, you know, I started my career, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't, I realized that pretty quickly. I loved advertising. And when I moved into advertising, all anyone cared about was television and print. And the internet was the stepchild that no one was really interested in. It created a huge opportunity for someone like me. Um, And it was messy and it was frustrating and it was new and and changing, constantly changing. And I, I really liked that. Um, I loved my experience. You know, I started my, my early career. I spent a lot of time at ad agencies. I thought it was the single best apprenticeship. I didn't go to business school, but I felt that working at an ad agency was an incredible apprenticeship whereby 
I got to work with a lot of really smart marketers. I got to work in, you know, multiple industries and sectors. I worked in travel, automotive, CPG, um, tech telco. So it was, I got to learn a lot of different businesses. I got to do strategy and, and applications simultaneously, which I really loved. I got to manage people at a young age. I learned a lot in that process. Um, and what I got to a point on the agency side of the business where I felt like I was buying things, not just creating things. I was buying, I was putting brands around things that other people were creating and I didn't, I wanted to create the thing. Um, and my first big break in that was to go to Microsoft. I took a global job. Um, I was a big athlete in college, so I never got to go abroad. And I felt like one thing that was missing for me personally was that international experience. Um, so I got it professionally. Uh, it was awesome and hard, but it was an era where big content platform companies were trying to figure out monetization scalable monetization worldwide because the internet had opened up platforms where they weren't just domestic. It was the internet's the internet. So that, you know, Microsoft was an incredible experience in that I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about saying no, to be honest with you. Microsoft, I always felt was a culture of no, which I didn't really like. It was very rigid. It was a technology culture. Um, I was somewhat immune to it. I actually had the benefit of it where there was a lot of money at Microsoft at the time. They invested a lot in digital. Um, I think they didn't have crazy expectations of return because the software business was so strong. So it, it gave me a lot of freedom to mess up and try things and do things. Um, I had a couple, you know, was at a couple small startups in the middle there. So I was felt like I was always oscillating between very big scalable companies and then small startups where you're doing everything and trying to figure it out with no money. Um, and what I really liked about digital was the internet was evolving as I was evolving personally and professionally. And I just wanted to keep staying current and relevant and to be pushed. I just always wanted to be pushed and to give a lot of freedom to do a lot of things. Um, and so, you know, that was true at Microsoft. That was certainly true at Yahoo. Um, and I was finding my way of, of basically connecting content and monetization and technology and distribution. And, you know, demand media was really interesting for me because it was the first time I really saw the way people find things change. Um, in, in a portal era, you just went to the homepage of MSN and you got your mail there and you got your stocks there and you got your music there. And it was true with Yahoo. And I remember, um, you know, I remember being at Yahoo and the editors, you could see what consumers wanted. You could see what they were clicking on and what they were clicking on was, you know, in the words of the editors, very fatty. They wanted entertainment. They wanted celebrity gossip. They didn't want journalism and news and the, I remember thinking the editors thought that was bad and I thought it was brilliant because you could finally, we were repressing what people wanted for editorial. And in my head, I'm like, you just can't do, you cannot get, people will demand what they want and you cannot fight that. Um, going to demand media was thinking about content and distribution through search where people telling you exactly what they want. They don't care what you're serving up. They're going to find what they need. Um, so I really loved that. And then the move to video with AOL, um, I, you know, was part of an awesome team that launched a startup called Backstage. And I think all of it, by the time I got to Barstool, I had seen very big things. I'd seen little things. I'd seen failures. I'd seen successes. I had mopped the floors and sat, you know, on top of big organizations. So I felt like I was nimble enough to understand making things and distributing them and monetizing them. Um, I was hungry to do it. I, I had moved up the marketer path and was kind of like, I don't want to be a, I don't just want to be a CMO anymore, which kind of killed me because I had worked so long. I had worked 15 plus years to be a CMO. And then I got there and I was like, Ooh, I want, I, I want something different than this. Um, and, and Barstool gave me that. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. 
At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. How did you have that realization? I mean, you were uh, you worked your way up to CMO. You were a yep. great CMO, but you decided you wanted to run it all, be CEO. I just, I felt, it was the same way I felt when I... Um, was buying media and not creating media. And when I was in the CMO chair, which is an awesome seat, uh, I felt the same way. I'm like, I'm marketing the product. I'm not the product. I'm not creating the product. And that can, you know, I, I don't think people talk about that enough, but it's very hard to market sometimes. A, you, you can be a great marketer, but sometimes it doesn't feel good to market a certain product or it, it's just not, it doesn't gel together in the right way. Um, and for me personally, I wanted to touch the product. I, I was like, I understand how to market the product. I understand how to make money off the product. I understand how to get people to believe this thing is something. But in reality, I feel like what the lesson I learned was like the best marketing is the product itself. And how can I get closer to that? Like, who will give me a chance to go make the product? It's a great insight, and I agree with that. Um, I, I was told at P&G as a young guy that, you know, great marketing will, uh, will destroy a bad product. Yes, that's right. You know, and, that's, and, and it's, always, it's always about the product. Tell me, with, with that amazing career path, is there a mentor or two who stand out who were particularly important for you? Yeah, there are so many people. Um, yeah, Joanne Bradford has had an indelible impact on my life. Um, and you fast, you first met Joanne at Microsoft, correct? I first met Joanne at Microsoft. Um, I was working at, I guess I was working at Arnold. I was working at Arnold. And Joanne had had a woman's event in Arizona. And clearly there had been people who had bailed because somehow I got an invite to this thing. I don't know how I got an invite to it. I, I clearly, it was last minute. Um, it, it was last minute and I got an invite to it. And Joanne had brought together, I, I don't know, probably 20, maybe 25 women in the industry. And I got to sit with them and see what they were about and what made them tick and I remember we had this dinner where Joanne loved Joanne loved to put you on the spot, uh, still probably does. And there was a dinner and everyone ha had to stand up and say, you know, what they believed was possible and, you know, could you have it all? And I was like, yeah, you can totally, you know, I want to have it all. Of course you can have it all. Um, and we stayed close and I went to go work for Joanne and Gail Troberman, who has also had an incredible impact um, and is, you know, brilliant and funny and one of the most creative marketers I have ever met. Um, but I was fortunate to work for, for both of them. I, you know, I had mentors before that on the agency side, I had clients who were mentors, uh, the, you know, the head of digital at Volkswagen gave me so many chances, uh, the CMO Vonage, you know, taught me math and modeling in a way that, you know, I couldn't pay enough for from a business degree perspective. But so I've been really fortunate to have a lot of mentors. Um, I also think there are different mentors in different ways. And some teach you things that you want to learn. And some people, some teach you things you don't want to learn. I always felt that in college where you would have really good coaches and really bad coaches. And the bad coaches can often tell you and teach you as much as, the, as the good coaches, if you're ready to listen and you can internalize and think through it. What was your sport in college, Erica? I played field hockey in college and then I picked up lacrosse in college. I was a lacrosse goalie. Do you still play? I have picked up hockey. I'm, I'm obsessed with ice hockey right now. I don't play either field hockey or lacrosse. Um, I felt like I spent most of my 20s and 30s just working. I just worked all the time. I still work all the time. But this summer, I wanted to pick up ice hockey because I thought it would I thought it would be a fun sport to play. I think it's kind of like a war and it's 
dangerous and it's fast and it's, you know, there's, it's not violent, but there's real strength to it. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. Good for you. Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's ridiculous. I but. used to play it on a pond when I was growing up and I know, oh, it's, <laughs> I know it's you have awesome. content about that. Yes. We just did two pond hockey tournaments. I'd never skated on a pond before, Jim. It's crazy. It's very it's hard. It's, it's very hard. That ice is terrifying. And we used to do it at night, and we'd set up our car lights. Oh, so cool. <laughs> yeah. So cool. So listen, uh, I want you to talk about um, our, our listeners love to hear about failures and how people mm-hmm. deal with that. So in this amazing career you've had, is there one failure that's defining for you, a standout? Mm, I feel like I've failed a lot, to be honest with you. Um, I feel like I've failed in different ways. Um, you know, I think one of the hardest, I, I think one of the hardest failures is when there's um, not market fit. So, you know, one of the things that was really hard uh, at a startup before um, Barstool that was called Backstage and what we were, I think the theory of it was brilliant. I think the CEO, Ron Harnevo, is incredible. Uh, the artists we were working with, the music managers, like there, it was the right, it was the right ecosystem. Um, but to to create a new type of social web in an era where there's an, an existing social web was really tough. Um, and watching every day whether we had market fit or not was as, in some ways agonizing because there's it either works or it doesn't somehow. Um, and it's hard to find, I think, the things that make things work. Um, and that's probably not very articulate, but, you know, I think the the places I personally feel like I've failed is I've either failed because something I wanted to create or was part of creating just wasn't going to work. Um, I was part of a small startup in the fashion space in the early 2000s, pre-social web. And it just wasn't, the economics were never going to work because there was no free distribution. If we had created that startup in 2018, it probably would have worked, but it wasn't going to work in 2005. Uh, so that's like, that's one way of failure. It's just market fit. Like, is your product going to mm-hmm. resonate? Is it going to work? I think the other place I've failed is that I tend to get frustrated. Um, and I've had moments in my career where I've just gotten really frustrated. Um, and I don't tend to do well in that, like I'm more knee jerk of like, if this isn't working, I want to get out. I want to do something where, where I can make an impact and build something. And I believe in it. I I think that there's a lot of people who get stuck at points in their career where you're just miserable, but you just stay there and bitch about it all the time. And I just like, that makes me crazy in my head. I can't do it. Um, That said, I think that there's moments where I should have been more patient uh, where financially it would have been smarter for me to just suck it up and wait it out. I've just never really been good at that. I, I don't know if those are specific enough, but those are examples I would give. Yeah, yeah. No, when that when that frustration thing goes off in your head right now in your current role, what strategies do you have to deal with it? Um, you know, the the great thing about Barstool is that there was, when I made the jump to Barstool, there was it was a one-way street. It was the bridge went one way and there was no one else. There there wasn't anyone coming on a white horse for Barstool Sports. Um, and I felt because I was the CEO that, and there were moments that were so frustrating um, that it was my problem. Like, and you can't run away from yourself at the end of the day. So, you know, and I think, my, you know, my advice to other people would be put yourself in a situation where you feel so much accountability to what you are building and such loyalty to the people you're building it with or the customer you're building it for that it 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 makes everybody has shitty days. Everyone has things that fail and and times you feel miserable or not good enough or inadequate. Um, but if you can get yourself with a nucleus that you really believe in and that you want that you want the best for, you know, I I think that I could have in my career been happier with smaller things or smaller wins. And at Barstool, you know, what's, what's just been incredible is while there have been, we've had our moments, don't get me wrong. 
we've just kept moving forward and everyone has this attitude. And I think when you're with other people who share that same feeling, it makes those hard times pass. One last question before, uh, about your past, really before jumping into Barstool. And it's a bit of a philosophical one, right? You, you have worked for three of the iconic tech companies of the last 30 years, Microsoft, Yahoo, AOL. One of them is really thriving and the other two less so. They've been acquired, you know, by Verizon, as you know. Why? Why did one really thrive? And the other two, I, um, a, lot, a lot tougher. I think there's probably, that's a whole podcast or five podcasts in its own right. But I'll tell you what, right. I, what I think. Um, I think both AOL and, look, at the end of the day, Microsoft had a DNA of being a product company, of shipping product, of installing software on desktops and mobile devices and computers manufactured by other people. Uh, and they, when you ship product, physical product, I feel anyways, it creates a discipline and it, it, it gives you, you, you can't fake that. Um, it, it's quantifiable, it's black or white, it's true or not true. When you work in the internet, there's a lot of tricks and gimmicks and, you know, you can buy the hype of saying we have, a, you know, half a billion uniques or we have insert extraordinary number here. And you can divert the dialogue to focus on very good, positive numbers, which may in fact just be bullshit. Um, or they're not totally bullshit, but it depends on the source and blah, blah, blah. And I think, I think what happened at AOL and at uh, Yahoo is that there, uh, there are a lot of really big numbers being thrown around. Big revenue numbers big audience numbers, big page view numbers. But when you get down to it and you look at, you know, like how many people are using Yahoo Finance or what is the sign-up rate of Yahoo Mail or how many people are getting their weather from AOL.com, I think sometimes CEOs and CMOs and executives want to just look at the positive numbers and the big numbers that they're going to report to their board or they're going to report to stakeholders. And, and it, when a company is that big, it's hard to choose which thing do you fix, which, which widget are you, is going to change the company. And I, those are very big companies. I, I, I have a lot of respect you know, for everyone I've worked for at those shops, but I think that that's a hard that's a hard thing to surmount. I also think that when you're acquired, sometimes you lose your hunger and you, you know, then it becomes, you know, my favorite new thing is synergy, which is like, okay, we're just going to cut the crap out of this and, you know, like just going to eviscerate cost. It's hard to pivot when you're eviscerating cost. And I think that's the other hard thing. You look at Yahoo's acquisition of Tumblr. Like if Tumblr wasn't acquired, who knows what Tumblr could have been? But they were acquired, so it slows pace and momentum. You know, you have a parent, you have a new owner, you have le possibly less resources, you have to focus on quote-unquote integration. And I think all those things just kind of like gunk up the wheels, and then you lose sight of what you were doing in the first place, which is, you know, I always have liked to be in consumer businesses. So like, what's the consumer buying? What's the consumer reading? What's the consumer engaging with? Um, so I, I don't, I mean, you probably have a better idea than I do, Jim, to be honest with you, but that would be my take. <laughs> well, it's my podcast, so I get to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. That's fair. So now, listen, you're, you're now at Barstool, four years as CEO, super hot company. Your valuation, what, I don't know, 13, 15 years ago was 15 million. And now four it's years like ago, 450 yep. million. Yep. And, you know, and you've got lots and lots of fans. So what could others learn about this rocketing growth that you've been such a part of? Uh, I mean, I've loved, I've loved Barstool Sports. I'm so proud to work here. I'm I get up every day. I'm so excited. I'm going, I've, I've literally, this is the first day I've stayed home in this quarantine and I'm like 
itching to go back to work. <laughs> I, I wish I was in the office right now. Um, I would say we are very pure in what we care about. And all we care about is content. And if you care about the content and you care about the audience, uh, it keeps your eyes on the prize. Like we are a company that moves really fast. We don't have a lot of, of I mean, we do have structure, but we have a very, we have a very nimble structure. Um, but our blinders are on what I believe are really the right things, which is content and audience. Now, we have people who only think about how do we incorporate brands into that content or how do we make T-shirts or how do we build new products or how do we make the technology work? But they are all in service of those two things, content and audience. And when you can look at things which, with such clarity, it, it makes you smell things that are too good to be true and probably aren't. It keeps your priorities and your money and your company focus in the right place. It keeps you from bullshitting yourself for somebody else. You know, one of the big things that we've, you know, obviously taken investment from Penn. I like how we structured our partnership whereby Penn is an investor. They sit on our board. They will take our brand to be their sports book. But we run this company independently. And what I'm interested in, in is growing Barstool Sports and in all facets, all facets and aspects in the same way we've done it the last, you know, Dave Portnoy, the founder, and I have done it in the last four years and in the same way he did it in the 16 years before that. So I think the big lesson is focus and purity of mission. And, you know, it would be funny. I would talk to people, I would talk to people, mentors and such when I was at Barstool or when I was new to Barstool and over the last four years, and they would say like, but your mission isn't crisp enough. It's not big enough. It's not, it's not aspirational enough. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, I, I get that, but I'm not making a mission for a slide to share at a keynote. I'm making a true mission for this company. And that mission is, is very clean and very pure and very easy to understand. So I, I think- how do, you, how do you articulate that mission, Erica? You know, our mission is to make content that entertains people and to that's that's what we do. Now, you talked you know, just a second ago about your early days as CEO. I want you to talk about that for our listeners, because I think it's really interesting. Right. You've never been a CEO before. Mm -hmm. You were coming in for the outside. Mm -hmm. You were coming into a founder led brand. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do to start up? How did you get off to a fast start, build confidence, build credibility with your team, with your clients? Uh, yeah, it was it was wild. Look, I think the best thing I did is I made a great choice. I met uh, Dave Portnoy, the founder. We met a bunch of times, just the two of us. Um, before I met the Chernin Group, who was the investor, before I met anybody else, I just met Dave. And what I really believed in was that Dave and I could build something really great together. We saw the world the same way. We had the same passion for commerce. So, so that was the first thing. I think, I think one thing that is hard with founder-led companies, you see this happening all over the place right now, is where it goes wrong is when you put someone like me, like me next to a founder who either doesn't want that person, wants to do it themselves, is resistant to that level of change, or you have a person from a business perspective or from the outside who thinks that your company should be something that that it's not, or it should never have been, or is too old school or too new school or whatever. So, so I think the biggest thing that that I'm very grateful for and and happy with is that Dave and I really had a, a good partnership and a good shared vision. Those first months and years, Jim, were terrifying. You know, I worried. There was no P&L when I got to Barstool. We weren't exact. I wasn't exactly sure who worked at Barstool. I'd never met any of these guys. Um, I didn't meet them until I had been at the company for four months, really. We worked out of coffee shops in New York City. We were trying to build a build infrastructure and like an exoskeleton of what this thing looked like while trying to convince advertisers to sign in and trying to figure out how do we make the merch. And so it was intense. It's been... I think I've done nothing really but barstool for the last four years, and I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it for a second. But um, you know, I think that 
it's easy to glam make the startup life glamorous or to make the fact that we now have a great valuation and we have an investment from a big, you know, big company seems so easy. It's been, you know, it's just been intense. It's been wild. Um, and I, I like that because I, what it forced me to do is I'd never been a CEO. I knew that they were taking a chance on me. I knew by joining a company that was perceived as controversial or not good that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to get the benefit of the doubt. Um, and I knew I was on my own. And so what I basically sought to do was to get my hands in literally every facet of the business. And I think that's what's proven to work. I don't know that that works for everyone. I don't think everyone is interested in that. I was interested in that. But, you know, how every piece of content gets made, how we think about distribution, what are the ways we can monetize? What's the culture we're going to create inside of this company? What, you know, how do we manage the office? How do we manage the P&L? How do we you know, do we get HR? Do we not get HR? Like what's permissible? What's not, you know, how do we play by other people's rules? What rules will we agree to? What rules will we not? So I felt like I've been able to touch everything. So I have, a, I feel now I have a very good sense of who we are and I feel that. Um, and I, I like that, you know, I think the other piece that I love about what we've built is that I, we built, I was able to take everything I did for 20 years, everything that didn't work, everything I hated, everything that sucked or where I failed and was able to put it all together and build something in 2016 the way I thought it should be built in 2016. And because Barstool was so small and no one really, you know, gave it the time of day, everyone left me alone. And to me, I think that that's like, I don't know that I'll ever have that again in my life. And I'm, I've loved it. That's pretty special. Erica, how, how are you a different CEO or leader now, four years later? And, and how is the company different four years later? Uh, company's real different. You know, we had maybe 15 people 2016, and now we have 250. Uh, we have multiple offices. We have multiple divisions. We have, you know, uh, uh, we're in a lot of different businesses and content verticals and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things happening at Parcel. So I would say the biggest difference between 2016 and now is size and scale and, you know, influence and significance. Um, I think at our heart, we still can't believe, you know, that this is happening and that this company is this big. I think that that's a spirit I really want to keep inside of Barstool is like just, feeling young and feeling fresh and feeling hungry. Um, I'm a different CEO in that, you know, in the beginning I had to do a lot of it myself. There was, you know, when I joined, they did, there weren't any business people. So I was the business person. Um, and now, you know, we've built a really great leadership team. Um, I'm really proud of the people who've worked at Barstool who are no longer at Barstool and the people who work at Barstool and are part of our leadership today. Um, I think I am, I'm, I don't know how I'm different. That's a great question, Jim. I, I think in some ways I'm sharper and, um, I'm able to suss through, whereas in the beginning I had to listen a lot and process and experiment mm -hmm. and learn. I still do a lot of that, but now I also have enough memory to say, okay, we, I've been down this road before and here's what happens here. So I, I trust my gut much more now, whereas I didn't always trust my gut in the beginning and I just had to hope it would work. And sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. Um, I think we have a really, have a very good sense of who will work here, what, what our DNA is. Um, I think I've become sharper and leaner and just in terms of like, okay, we're moving, let's move. This isn't working. It's let's change it. So I, I think those are, I've become, I've always been decisive, but I think I've become more decisive. Um, I also have a far greater sense of what I'm protecting, what I'm defending and what I'm going after. You know, I, you know, I felt there was a time where I thought we would grow ourselves like Vice, where we would have a lot of traditional partnerships, where we would grow through ESP, a show on ESPN or show on Comedy Central. And so I was very partnership oriented in the beginning. I was selling a lot. 
And what I realized is these people aren't really comfortable with us and we're not really comfortable with them and the economics aren't right. So I've become more isolationist in some way, not in a bad way, but more centered on, okay, we're building this thing the way we're building it. I actually think we're right about where content is going and the internet is going and people are going. Um, So I would say I've become more independent, I guess I would say in that. Mm -hmm. What about the culture you have at Barstool? Do you really, really protect? I mean, it's an important decision, right? What, as you get bigger, what do you ha- what can you never let go of? What do you have to continue to yeah. cultivate? What, what is that? And what do you see that at Barstool? And what do you see your role in doing that? One is just chaos and creative freedom. Like there has to be some chaos. Um, you know, I, I felt I could, it was much easier back then to bubble wrap the content people, the content guys, and build a business around them and not have it affect them. Now it's harder to separate the two. But I'll give you an example. Like I had a call this morning and um, we're talking to a bunch of lawyers. Uh, we're doing a show about a comedy show about stock picks, like ridiculous stock picks are bad. Nobody knows what they're talking about. And the lawyers want compliance. You know, they they, they and for for very, very, very good reason. They're saying you got to worry about this. You got to worry about that. You got to worry about this. You got to worry about that. And my thing is, you know, I, so my thing is like, you always have to explain to me the risk. I, I have to understand. I think too often people take things as face value from other people. I would say that's one thing I've really learned at Barstool, which is I don't take anything at face value from anyone because what's your motivation? Why, why do you want me to do this? Is it good for you or is it good for me? Um, so, so that's been interesting learning how to navigate that. But one of the suggestions was, hey, why don't you just have some of the personalities disclose this, that, or the other thing during the show? And my point is like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, we're not here to create disclosure from people who want to be funny. So that's a good example of, you know, hey, let the legal pieces be the legal pieces. We'll run a brilliant, funny disclaimer at the beginning of the show and the end of the show, but let people be funny. Let there be chaos. Let us find what the boundary looks like. It is far easier to pull people back from a boundary or to evolve a boundary than to never go near it. You now work with lots of CMOs, right? Mm -hmm. And you see lots of brands and clients and advertisers. Could you talk about one that has really, I know you have many great brand you work with, but one client that has really leveraged their creativity in your platform ex- exceedingly well. And was it, what is it about them that enabled them to do that? Yeah. Um, the example I would use is Bud Light. I think that Bud Light has done an incredible job understanding an attention economy. Um, they've understood in a category, again, highly regulated, very sensitive. Uh, they've They've figured out how to be funny and relevant and timely in a way that I've seen few other packaged goods brands and alcohol brands to a degree. I, I, I've seen Bud Light do things that, that I think are incredible. Um, they understand influence, first of all. They understand... Uh, that they've had a brand that for however many years, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of years has been dominant. So it has a cachet to our talent and personalities and to our audience. Um, and they've done things that have give, have made them relevant or ambient in a way that is just natural. So, you know, I'll give you an example. We have a podcast called Pardon My Take, a number one sports podcast. And Bud Light three weeks ago sent us a fridge that a beer fridge that was customized for Pardon My Take. And the beer fridge shows up at Barstool and everyone's going bananas because can you believe that Pardon My Take has their own beer fridge? (laughs) They made it. (laughs) They made it, right? They made it. And it looks good and it's their design and it feels like us. And so what what do the PMT guys do? They put it in their studio. And the camera turns on in the studio. And what are you seeing in the studio? And what are you seeing on social media? You're seeing that Bud Fridge. 
Um, we had another, you know, we, we had a video producer who created a campaign called a zillion beers, which was, you know, Hey, I'm going to go drink a zillion beers. And, you know, it was, it was incredible to watch. It took off like lightning. We sold almost $2 million of merchandise around zillion beers. And Bud Light said, we'll make you a custom zillion beers can. And they spent, I think each can cost $300. They made us one 30 pack. And now there are 30 of these cans with Dana's Mohawk cut to a zillion beers. <laughs> and they did that. That's not a media buy. It's not a marketing campaign. It's not a slogan. They just did it. And so I think that they've really understood how to play ball, knowing that all the walls have broken down and all the rules have changed. Um, and they also know, look, like we're not going to put the fridge in if you're not going to invest in Barstool Sports and we don't have a formal commitment. But they've done an incredible job. If you look at their socials, they've done an incredible job. They play with other brands. They take advantage of memes. So they understand a content they understand a content ecosystem, an attention ecosystem, an influence ecosystem, and they've put their brand into it in a way that it, it makes it additive. So I think they've done an exceptional job. They have a great team there. They really do. They, they tell the truth. They, they leverage creativity well. They listen to yep. others. They experiment. Yeah. And they're not afraid. You know, like that's that's my biggest thing with marketers is it's just so easy to be tight and afraid right now, like it, at literally right now, but like in general, like you've got to loosen it up and, you know, like I'll give you an example. Like I started playing hockey, Bauer hockey sent me like enough stuff to like outfit me in hockey for the next hundred years. Now I don't believe in free ads. They have a partnership with us. We create merchandise with them, but they're smart because they're like, Hey, the more people people see wearing Bauer stuff, you know, the better off their company will be. It's free, it's quote unquote free marketing or it's it accelerates their marketing. So I think that the more embracing, I think there's probably still too many walls in marketing right now, whereby the social people and the PR people are different than the media people, which are different than the creative people. Like the more that that can come together in a way that's really nimble, I think those are the brands you're seeing resonate. One last question about your CEO role, and then I want to jump into a bit of a lightning round to close out this fabulous conversation. So what, as CEO, what is your absolutely number one priority? Uh, talent. Our people. Our people. I care so much about our company and our team and our people. And I think the single best thing I can do is to listen to them, create an environment where they can be successful, find people who we need to push us to the next level. Recruiting is huge. Um, and people need different things. Talent and personalities need freedom and, and toys and things to play with and things to do. Um, business people sometimes need structure. Um, they need resource to go, you know, to go achieve things. So I, I, I think the single biggest thing I care about are our talent and our, our talent, our company. Beautiful. And, uh, I couldn't agree more, by the way, it's always about the people, right? I don't care. I don't care what industry you're in. It's always about the people. And one beautiful thing about this podcast is I get to hear so many voices about how they work with their teams, how they value people, how they build their culture. I mean, it's very inspiring. Yeah, it's awesome. As you are. Ah, that's so nice. Listen, I want to end this conversation with a lightning round about a number of topics. I think we're going to have some fun with this. The first one is, what's one brand today that is really important for you that you would have trouble living without? Oh, that's a great question. Um, a brand today that I would have trouble living without. Um, I mean, I'm pretty obsessed with my phone, so I would say Apple is a brand that I don't badge myself with Apple, but I'm very, very dependent on Apple. Um, Amazon is a brand. I don't have a lot of, you know, it's a different kind of brand for me to love. It's not an emotional brand. I think they're becoming more emotional. But, you know, this morning, <clears throat> I think it was that they're not, Amazon's going to stall or delay or cease non-essential medical packages. Like that's going to have a big impact on my life. Um, so they're a brand I'm very dependent on. Mm -hmm. What's one thing you learned at your alma mater 
Colby College that you carry with you today? Uh, that every person should live in New York City for six months of their life. Okay. <laughs> I had a sociology professor, Tom Morioni, who I loved. Um, I was a sociology major, and I learned a lot from Tom Morioni. One was I read a book uh, about, about the McDonaldization of America, and it talked a lot about the world we live in now, but this is in the late 90s. Um, but he also said that every person should live in New York for six months. And that always stuck with me. Um, I was afraid, you know, I'd never lived in New York. I remember going to New York on recruiting trips and not being entirely confident to hail a cab. So I would say my biggest thing is every person should live in New York for six months. And you do now. Yeah. <laughs> for more than six months. <laughs> for more than six months. <laughs> What's one thing about you that we cannot find online? Oh, there's a lot, but um, I love houseplants. I'm like very into houseplants. I love plants. I think growing something is the best. So I'm trying to be good at raising houseplants. Wow. Do you have a garden outside or nope. you're more of an inside? <laughs> Just okay. a lot of houseplants. Yeah, that's cool. It's manageable, yeah, it's right? To be around with green. Yeah, it's good to be surrounded by green. I think being surrounded by living things is great. I think having to care for things is great. I think things seeing gr things grow is great. So that's my weird fact. You have to be so in touch with what's going on in culture. How do you stay in touch? What are your rituals to stay fresh, creative, you know, uh, just in touch with the business you're in? What could others uh, learn from how you spend your time? I try to talk to as many people as humanly possible. I talk to people all day long. My door is open. I feel like I'm always I'm talking to people, old people, young people, people in our business, people not in our business. I, I like people. Uh, I think people are an interesting way to learn things. I also love the internet. Like I could read the internet mm -hmm. all day long and you can kind of get lost in it. And I think it can be very unhealthy. Um, but, uh, I think by reading a lot, observing a lot and talking to people and not distancing yourself, you know, I, I get criticized for not being, I think, executive enough, um, which is fine. I'm very okay with that. But I think when you become, when you put yourself in an echelon where you're isolated and you're in a tower and you're not with the people, I think you're screwed. Um, because I feel, I just feel current. Um, I work with mostly 20 year olds, you know what I mean? Like they're into all sorts of shit. I don't even understand, but I'm interested in understanding it. So I think that that's, that's how I do it. So what's something recently, either a podcast, music, a show, a series, what, what's something that's impacted you, affected you that you'd like to talk about? Uh, like TikTok. I'm very interested in TikTok and seeing this. It's TikTok is just teeming with creativity right now. They haven't figured out monetization. They've got issues with China. Nobody cares. No 15-year-old cares. And what they're doing on TikTok is creating all of this virality and all of these trends and thinking about how our brand should be in there or how our personalities and who's resonating and why do they resonate and when do they wink to the camera. Um, I think watching that Watching TikTok is, it's, it's weird and it's entertaining and it's illuminating. So I, I would say I'm very interested in TikTok right now. Last question on the personal side. What's your favorite family ritual? Oh, favorite family ritual. Um, favorite family ritual. We have a very funny family. So uh, my family likes to give each other a shit at most every occasion. So, uh, we have a ritual. We have a rich, we have a couple rituals, but, um, one of the rituals we have is I'm getting a puppy and my mother just got a puppy and we insist on a naming. It has to be a group. It used to be, you would put the, uh, you would write the name and you'd put it in the bucket and then sure. you choose and debate and discuss. Now it's virtual. It's in WhatsApp. Um, so, you know, my favorite, that would be a current ritual that's happening is everybody's suggesting names. My brother is suggesting like extremely inappropriate names <laughs> that like my mother's dog should be named Boner, like stuff like that. So you kind of go back to like high school, but, um, I think just that would be a ritual that. that so do you have a name yet? Funny. Are you still in process? 
We're still in process. My mother is naming her dog Scout, which I think is a little predictable, but it could have been worse. But And what kind so of dog are you it. getting, Erica? I'm getting a Leon Burger. Oh, wow. Which is a big dog. Yeah. yeah. Good for so you. We'll see. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Good luck, houseplants. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I know. There's going to be a lot going on in here. All right, last, last question. Uh, this has been wonderful. Who would you like to listen to in the CMO podcast? Oh, I mean, you've just had incredible people like Wendy Clark. I couldn't get enough of. Um, you know, I think I would love to see you have as many startup people as you can. I think, you know, Haley Sachs from Mrs. Dow Jones is interesting or uh, the women from Comments by Celebs, um, which is just this Internet, you know, a yep. Instagram account, which is just flourishing. So I would say young women who are uh, starting on their own, figuring things out are interesting. I think Ty Haney, who's going through something, you know, she founded Outdoor Voices. She's obviously going through a change. I think that's very interesting. Beautiful. Great ideas. Erica, this, is, this has been a blast and good luck with everything as you get through the coronavirus and, and keep the momentum and the creativity going. It's, you're, you're a real inspiration. Thanks for spending time with us. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was so nice. I feel the same way about you. That was my conversation with Erica Nardini. And wow, what a great one. I mean, I would actually recommend you listen to it again. She is so connected to what is going on in culture. She's so self-aware as a CEO. Uh, When I asked her what she's focused on as a CEO, she quickly said talent. It's about talent, creativity, and making sure people come to work, you know, with their full self. So this was just a conversation filled with such... um, such insights, such humanity, such grace, such humor. Uh, she's the kind of CEO that I think everyone would want to work for. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.